what's what is in it in in us? Why do we feel the the urge to always complexify things? Well, we like to create, right? Mm. I mean, there, there's a, a natural, I think, human satisfaction to create and have that ownership of that. But but again, in a complex organization, you don't see the distributed cost from that. It takes, mm. I think, it takes vision, it takes courage to keep things simple. Uh, you know, you've heard, I, I don't know if it was Steve Jobs, but or, or many people yeah. that is today, the role of a senior executive is more to say what not to do. What's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for joining yours, truly, Ryan Caligiuri, on this week's episode of Cut the Crap Podcast, where every single week I'm reading a book. Condensing that book down, it's core golden nuggets. I'm bringing the author on the show to have a conversation about the golden nuggets. And I'm here every single week just trying to save you a little bit of time and bring you some information that I believe can spark real change in your life. If you love the show, then please go online, rate, and review the show. Send a screen capture of your rating, of your review to podcast at ryancalajuri.com and I'll make sure you get entered into the draw every single quarter for a prize. And of course, this quarter's prize, we're giving away $1,000 in cash. So best of luck to you. I hope you win. And uh, again, if you're a podcast platform, if you're listening on like Spotify, for example, I know you can't rate or review the show, then just send me an email at podcast at ryancalajuri.com and let me know what you think of the show. Also, don't forget to connect with me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you want to follow me along throughout the week, see what I'm doing. If you want to stalk me, I mean, it's a little bit creepy, but it is what it is. It's all good with me, but uh, follow me on, uh, on on all the social platforms and connect with me and let me know that you uh, found me through the podcast by just sending me a quick message and saying hi. All right. This week, what do we got going on? This week, we're talking to Andre Perumal about his book, Growth in the Age of Complexity, Steering Your Company to Innovation productivity and profits in the new era of competition. Man, with a headline like that, why wouldn't you want to pick this up if you're in business? There was a lot of really great takeaways from this book. Some specific ones in particular that I really, really enjoyed was the section about all the different sirens. And pique your interest a little bit there. What are sirens? What's the importance of the siren? Why did I find that interesting? Well, I'll give you a quick little teaser here, but the siren songs essentially are those things that we believe to be true, those things that we follow blindly that don't make a lot of sense. They steer us in the wrong direction as opposed to the right direction. When I read that, man, I saw so many patterns in a lot of organizations that I've been with, organizations that I've coached, that I've consulted with that have followed those siren songs. And yes, even yours truly followed a lot of those siren songs, but Andre Perumal, he comes from a very deep business background, a lot of experience. So that's the type of person that you want to learn from. I want to learn from him because there's so much that we can garner from his years of experience. And why wouldn't you? Somebody who's been there, done that, made the mistakes. You got to learn from those people so you don't make the same mistakes. And so in this episode, we talk about a lot of the things that I know for a fact that you, if you are in business, you might be making these mistakes or you might be seeing your management team making these kind of mistakes. So learn from the mistakes of others, get away from complexity, move towards simplicity, because in business, man, I'm telling you, there's just too much complexity. And that's the one thing I fight for, and I talk about this in the podcast, but I fight for simplicity. But simplicity is hard. It's really hard because far too many people believe that the complex means that they're intelligent. By making things complex, they feel smarter, they feel more important, they feel like, man, I'm doing something that really matters here. Or I'm doing something that nobody else can do. Ah, it's not that way. Best thing to do is to keep things simple, not complex. 
You know, we hear greats like Albert Einstein, Steve Jobs, Bruce Lee even talking about moving from complex to simple. There's something there. And so we gotta consistently move ourselves towards simple and get our minds set to move away from complexity. But again, it's tough to do that if you don't really know where to go. So this book really covers off a lot of those points and I make sure that Andre and I talk about those. So I really hope that you enjoyed this podcast, that you take some serious notes on this and that you're able to take something from this and put it into uh, practice, into your business, into your firm or uh, in your management team, whatever it is. In any case, everybody, let's crack right into this one. Again, this is growth in the age of complexity, steering your company to innovation, productivity, and profits in the new era of competition. And I'll catch you back here at the end of the episode. Enjoy. Andre, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. Thank you, Ryan. Excellent. Thank you so much for making time to uh, come on the show and uh, make time for myself and everyone out there in Cut the Crap Podcast Nation. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, because you know people may not know who you are or what you do. So, give us a little bit of a background into uh, into that, and then tell us why you wrote the book. Certainly. Well, I'm I'm currently a managing partner and co-founder of Wilson Carlin Company, a you know management consultancy. But the uh, focus on economic profit, you know, value based management, the good just kind of core strategy skills that I I learned to help companies with at Bain, and then my experience in operations and nonlinear systems. And uh, pulled that all together, and in, in 2009 started our current firm. And when we, I started with my partner Stephen Wilson, who had a, a background of Maricon and also a George Group. And uh, when we look back at the consulting work that we had been a part of, that was most impactful to organizations. It was much more about how they put the pieces of their business together than getting better at any one particular piece. So we launched our business writing a book called uh, Waging War on Complexity Costs, and. You know, keep in mind, Ryan, that was right uh, in the you know right in the aftermath of the uh, you know the financial downturn, nice. and and a lot of companies were trying to cut costs, and uh, we saw a lot of companies doing that or, or being in, either ineffective in doing that or doing that in a way that really kind of cut the legs out of the business. Hmm. So we we look at companies as uh, you know, we kind of took a different approach and saw hey the world and markets and companies and organizations have become so complex now that they're really best thought of as a complex system, you know, not, you know, um, and by that, I mean, you know, uh, complex webs of cause and effect, not linear chains of cause and effect. And, uh, and, and that made companies prone to many unintended consequences. And so we looked at, at companies and markets as complex systems and then uh, came up with some many, uh, you know, new insights uh, around cost reduction. And then in our latest book, uh, um, Growth in the Age of Complexity, we look at the issue of growth through a complex systems lens. And we also, do a lot of work looking at the issue of risk through a complex systems lens. And, and you know, whenever we do that, we come up with new insights. We find out that many of the things that uh, many of the ways we manage businesses or have been taught to manage businesses are outmoded for today. Hmm. And uh, that's what we offer our readers in the books. Wow. Excellent. You have quite the pedigree, my friend. Oh, thank you. So let's get into it. Golden nugget number one, you know, companies all over the world at one point in time, they're all focused on trying to grow their companies. I mean, maybe some companies are out there, they're trying to you know, scale back. Others are maybe a lifestyle business and they're just trying to maintain their level um, you know, of growth. But for the most part, most companies out there are trying to grow. But many companies are facing a challenge that is foreign to them that you call the paradox of growth. So what exactly is the paradox of growth and why do we need to be aware of it? Well, quite simply, the paradox of growth, but by that we mean that oftentimes... The actions the company takes to grow are the same things that actually limit their ability to grow. And this is, you know, one example, of, you know, kind of a prime example of what's different about the world today. You know, this complex world than, than it was in, you know, decades past. 
And I'll just give you a quick example. Uh, our first client was um, an automotive tool company, mm-hmm. and they had lost about mm-hmm. uh, 40% of their revenue in the economic downturn. And so they were unprofitable, and quite naturally they thought, hey, their path to profitability is to regain their sales. They have to just regain volume. Mm-hmm. So they became very aggressive in trying to get every, what I would call, scrap of revenue. They proliferated their product line. They went from uh, automotive repair tools to uh, you know safety gloves and goggles and so forth. Not a too big a stretch. And then they went from that into other clothing, T-shirts, NASCAR T-shirts, and then went into die-cast toys. And so their product line just ballooned. And now the supply chain was, and, and, and the sales force were struggling under the, the weight of that broad product line. So their on-time delivery and product availability plummeted. Mm-hmm. And when we looked at the company, in fact, it was their parent that asked us to come in. And they had about six months to turn around the business so they'd be shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, they'd already replaced the management team, and they were going through a second replacement. Wow. Uh, and <clears throat> what, um, what we found was that you know their customers' key buying factors, number one, was product availability. Number two was perceived value. Uh, about number seven or eight was breadth of product line. Hmm. Uh, but breadth of product line was the only one that they were rated higher than their competitors in. So what we did was kind of help them go backwards and help them trim out the product line, get the uh, the service levels back up, uh, and turn around the business. So how do you develop a mindset that's keen to understanding you know, whether or not you're doing the right thing? Because I imagine there's some people out there and Cut the Crap Podcast Nation, who might be thinking about this and saying, well, if I'm trying to grow my business, how do I know what I'm doing is the right thing or the wrong thing? Yeah, that's a great question. And let me say, uh, we by no means are saying that all complexity is bad, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody's saying, hey, let's just you know, go back to the, um, you know, the proverbial black bottle tea and you know, one car, <laughs> one color. Right. So complexity is good. Complexity can also be bad. Or, or maybe better said, too much complexity is bad. And for many reasons, companies almost always veer towards too much complexity. And I, I would challenge your readers to think about the companies that tend to be the leaders in their industry. And in the majority of cases, those companies actually are the simplest. You know, they may have the simplest product. Line. You know, I think of In-N-Out Burger in the, in the, uh, you know, the mm. fast food industry. Very, very simple operation, very, very simple menu, doing fantastically well. Oftentimes, complexity is, is uh, you know, as my, my partner Stephen Wilson says, complexity is the um, you know, the accidental strategy. It just, uh, if you don't really have a clear mind of what you do, you just do a lot of things and hope something works and then you end up with the complexity that, that follows from that. But to, to, to really know whether you're doing something, uh, let's say you're adding good complexity or bad complexity, I think first uh, requires dismantling some uh, mindsets that we tend to have that I think are leftovers from the industrial age. Mm. Um, one is uh, economy of scale. You know, we all tend to, I mean, even in my business, we all tend to think that if we got more sales, we'd make more money, right? right? I mean, that's pretty natural. We think, hey, if we get bigger, we're going to be more profitable. Our research shows that nearly half, almost exactly half of the companies on the S&P 500 have become less profitable as they grew. Hmm. Um, so economy, so it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a crapshoot. Uh, we, you know, a lot of folks kind of have the uh, industrial age mindset or what's taught in business school, you know, the, the, the standard fixed variable cost paradigm. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a bunch of fixed costs and there are a bunch of other costs that are variable costs. And as I get bigger, I, I get greater fixed cost leverage and I become more profitable. We believe there are three categories of costs. And that came out in our first book back in 2009. There's also complexity costs. And the difference is complexity costs grow geometrically or exponentially with the level of complexity in the business. And they've always been there. 
But in the 1950s, there was so little complexity. And if you think about an exponential curve, it was on that early flat part of the curve. So Mm. you could kind of ignore it. So right now, what we see is as companies try to do more things to grow bigger, to then have economies of scale, those more things are, are, are growing this other category of costs you know, exponentially. Right. And it's a tug of war. I mean, in, in fact, you know, a company's cost competitiveness really comes down to this tug of war between real economies of scale and exponential growth and complexity costs. So, so if I'm adding complexity, uh, and, and we haven't really defined that yet, and we can go more into that, but, you sure. know, if I'm adding more products, markets and such, you know, systems, business units, or, you know, organizational entities, if I'm adding complexity faster than I'm growing revenue, all else being equal, I'm going to become less profitable. Yeah. And, but if I can grow revenue fast and collect the other way around. Hmm. That's really where it kind of leads us to golden nugget number two. And I've always strived to keep things as simple as possible. And that's just because I, I need to keep things simple for me to effectively execute things. I, I hate when things get complex. But why is it that by default? Because I feel like there's people out there in Cut the Crap Podcast Nation. Like You're probably listening out there right now and you're maybe like screaming out loud. You're like, yes, I need to show this to my boss or I need my boss to listen to this because our <laughs> business is too damn complex. Like, Why yeah. is it that that's the case? Like, I look at whether it's everything from strategic planning to product development to sales to marketing. People like to complexify things. What's, what is in it in, in us? Why do we feel the, the urge to always complexify things? Well, we like to create. Right. I mean, there, there's a, a natural, I think, human satisfaction to create and have that ownership of that. But, but again, in a complex organization, you don't see the distributed cost from that. It takes, mm. I think it takes vision. It takes courage to keep things simple. Uh, you've, uh, you know, you've heard, I, I don't know if it was Steve Jobs but, or, or many people yeah. that have today, the role of a senior executive is more to say what not to do. That's right. Right. Uh, and as people grow up through organizations, they're kind of trained to do things. Uh, and, and that's a hard shift. And so uh, I think that, you know, as organizations become even more complex and, uh, you know, and the silos become deeper, that the, those gifts of vision and courage are less rewarded. Hmm. Um, so I, th- I think those are some of the yeah. challenges. It's profound in a very subtle way, but this need to create, right? I think as we as human beings, we love to create. So when I just think about... As I read this book, as we're talking right now, I'm thinking about all the instances in my career where I've seen things go from very simple to complex. And every single time it was this innate desire, this need to create, you know, it was like, why did we add this new product line? Somebody wanted to develop this new product line. They thought it was going to be exciting and the excitement of creating something new. And, but it wasn't, they had no idea how they could sustain it or they didn't look at the long-term vision of it or, you know, but there's maybe there's something to that, that need to create. But um, I'm also reminded of Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, where he talks a lot about the hedgehog concept and the fox, the whole story there. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, how a lot of companies maybe, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're trying to do too many things at once. But the hot hedgehog, man, the hedgehog does one thing really well, right? It burrows itself down to protect itself from the fox. But the fox, on the other hand, man, that's the fox is wily. It's going to try different techniques and different strategies to try to get at that hedgehog. That hedgehog stays safe all by doing one very simple thing. But it's um, for some reason, it's built into us that, you know, doing one simple thing is not enough. We need to do more. We need to do more and more. But, you know, as you outlined for us, that's not the case. So as we go to golden nugget number three, this is really one of my most favorite parts of the book. I really, really enjoy this part. Golden nugget number three is all about the sirens of growth and the resistance against those sirens. So first, before we get into each one individually, first tell us what a siren is, and then let's walk through the very first one, the expanding portfolio, and then talk about the opposite to that 
and smart variety. Yeah, the sirens are great. That's an allusion to the Greek, Greek sirens. Uh, um, and, you know, the sirens were the temptresses, you know, the, be- the, 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 the mm-hmm. beautiful songs from, you know, the island that would lure sailors to their death on the rocks. And so we think that's an apt metaphor for where a lot of businesses are and executives are today. There are these, these alluring songs uh, that have, you know, they have some truth to them, but they're misleading and they're dangerous. And, you know, so Odysseus put beeswax in his ears to resist those songs. But you mentioned the uh, expanding portfolio. That, that's the first of the four sirens we talk about in the book. And the idea is, hey, more is better, right? More products are better. If I'm meeting my customers' desires. Uh, and and that's, the, that's the allure. Uh, the reality often is uh, companies grow because they don't really know what their customers want. So they're just throwing things. You know, they're throwing things at the wall and hope something, something right. sticks. And, and when you have all that complexity, I mean, a, a complex portfolio actually becomes noise between you and your customer. You don't really know what the customer wants. And again, that's why you know, we call that an accidental strategy. You have the expanding portfolio, but then we have smart variety. What's smart variety? Well, smart variety is it's how you get both the customer intimacy and the uh, scale economies at the same time. And I'll just give you one example. Sure. Uh, it may be dated a few years back, but it actually took us about six years to write the book. So it wasn't dated <laughs> when we started the book. Um, but Macy's, you know, Macy's had the My Macy's program. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you may know the history of Macy's grew by uh, um, acquiring regional department stores. Mm-hmm. It was the first truly national department store. But uh, uh, Terry Lundgren, the CEO of Macy's, you know, uh, he, and he was a merchandiser in one of the regional uh, department stores they bought years, years before. Um, you know, he realized that. What I, think, I think it was uh, Ralph Lauren he was speaking with. And uh, let's say, hey, we'd like to get a different custom assortment set. And the assortment set is the, you know, the mix of, you know, petite or extra small, small, medium, large and such. And, and Ralph Lauren was, or was a little bit receptive to the to do that. And Terry Lundgren said, hey, we're your largest, we're your largest customer. Hmm. And Ralph Lauren corrected him and said, no, you're my uh, fourth largest and my sixth largest and my hmm. seventh largest because we're operating as, in, you know, independent buying everywhere. But what Macy's did with them, they truly consolidated nationally. They freed up about 800 or about 1,600 positions. They redeployed about 800 of those to uh, be the merchandisers to the store. So rather than uh, um, a planner and a merchandiser being over uh, about 100 stores, they were over about 10. So they were much more intimate hmm. with the customer and to have a much more tailored offering to that specific locale. They then consolidated the buying nationally. So a lot of information, you know, now rather than buying and merchandising being uh, uh, centered at kind of a regional level, I got very, very local and I got, I got very, very, uh, or or I got national. Hmm. And so now Terry London can come back and say, I want a custom assortment set uh, because I have, uh, you know, smaller, you know, Asian clientele in Garden Grove, California, and in this zip code in New York and such. So what we found was the, the, portfolio, and, and Macy's didn't, didn't launch this as a portfolio rationalization project. They, they launched it as a real customized tailoring project to the local markets. Hmm. But by really knowing what those customers wanted, in the end, they actually had fewer SKUs in the store and through the supply chain. So when we talk about the expanding portfolio, we listen to that siren song, that song that's trying to lure us into, you know, the depths of whatever, of complexity. The siren song, you know, you might hear things like, more is better than less whatever the customer asks for, 
or let's, exactly. let's see what sticks, right? Those are the siren songs. So again, the strategy to that is, is smart variety. And that again is the expanding portfolio. So now let's get into the second one, the greener pasture. Talk to us about the greener pasture. Well, the greener pasture kind of has two parts of it, but the first is pretty simple. Grass is greener, mm-hmm. right? We see a lot of companies like, hey, I'm struggling, kind of struggling where, you know, where I'm at, so I need to go do something else. It may be the, uh, hey, I'm, I'm struggling selling automotive tools, so I'm going to try selling some T-shirts as well. Uh, so it's somewhat similar, but, and as we all know <laughs> in life, rarely is the grass so much greener, That's right? right? Uh, the other part to it, which is uh, kind of a, a, a branch of that, is I'm doing well here, so I'll do well over there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And we see that's often not the case, right? Because you're you're either stretching yourself thinner or over. You know, the what made you good here doesn't translate over there. Uh, so companies can tend to overreach. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw that uh, years ago with. Uh, I mean, this is a, a little bit dated as well, but uh, it's just a wonderful example. You know, uh, Miller Coors, or, or I'm sorry, Coors, mm-hmm. when Coors uh, had, you know, they were the number one um, you know beer company in the Mountain States by far, uh, but they had about eight percent nationally. And probably, I would say they probably were about 40-some percent in the mountain states. And they decided to expand nationally. If, if for, instead of just being number one in the mountain states, let's be number one in mm-hmm. And they expanded nationally, but now they have all the national advertising. They're, you know, they're uh, always, uh, was it um, never pasteurized, refrigerated mm, right. beer. That was a lot. That's right. Uh, you know, they're trying to distribute that around the country and such. You know, years later, they came back. You know what? They were still 8%, hmm. but, you know, nationally but they were just spread across the country and they were no longer number one in their core mountain states area. The winnable market, the winnable new market is the strategy. Explain that to us. Well, there's two parts to it. One is knowing why you win and does that translate into the new market? A lot of companies don't really know why they win. You know, they don't truly, you know, we talk late in the book and I hope we get to talking about our point that companies don't really know where they make money, Mm -hmm. but here they don't really know what made them successful. Uh, And, and they're not, they oftentimes, uh, they don't have a real clear view of what made them successful. They don't have a real, real, real clear view of which of that translates into the new market. But the other part of it is ensuring that by going into the new market, you're not dismantling, breaking down, or losing what actually made you successful mm-hmm. in the initial market, you know, unless you're choosing to, to leave that market, right. as, you know, as, as, as what happened in that you know, Coors uh, example. Right, exactly. So the third one here, the third siren song, the smash hit. So you might hear things like a single thing will determine our success. You know, let's bet the farm this has to succeed or if we just can't find a differentiated product. So yeah. the, the, the challenge with that is, is what with the smash hit? Describe that to us. Here, here's the challenge. I love this one because everybody wants a smash hit, right? <laughs> I mean, everyone wants to stay out of commodity hell. We all want a differentiated product or service that we could charge, you know, you know, or obtain a premium margin on. And that's what we all want. So mm-hmm. we get so focused on the need to have a differentiated product or service. We get so we, we get almost get myopic around having that differentiated product or service. Right. So oftentimes then we're just throwing things at the wall to see what sticks. Mm. We're, you know, innovating new products because I need a differentiated product right. so bad, you know, and, or I can be betting the company on having that differentiated new product. But here's, here, here's where things have changed. Uh, the, you know, the, the perishability of products is so much you know, shorter for today. Um, competitive advantages are so much more fleeting that having a differentiated you know, premium margin product or service isn't good enough anymore. 
That's not the competitive advantage. The real competitive advantage is the ability to consistently uh, to consistently develop differentiated products and services, you know, more consistently or faster than others, mm. right? And so if you're just trying to throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and see what sticks, you're putting a lot into your innovation commercialization right. pipeline, and you clog it all up, and you have a, a traffic jam in there, and you actually, <laughs> you know, this is another example of the paradox where uh, now I'm actually not innovating. Uh, I may get one hit, and I could ride that for a little bit, but it's not sustainable. So the last siren here, the castle walls. So you might hear things like, we like where we are. It has served us well here, and we're going to stay here. Or declining margins are a short-term blip. Or customers, they want quality, not a low-priced knockoff. So talk to us about the castle walls. Well, the castle walls a little bit of a self-delusion, right? It's, it's how maybe we want to see the world. You know, um, we're, we've achieved success up to a point based on how we were and how the world was, and we want to think it's continuing that way. Um, and it's alluring, right, because it validates uh, all the decisions we have made and means we don't have to change. But the world, the marketplace, our competitors, our customers, they're all changing. And so the castle wall is that hunker down. You know, it's very inward focus. Um, but we find that companies that uh, take that castle wall approach uh, tend to get outpaced. And, you know, and in, in, in I'm sure other authors have cited many times just – the, the increased rate of turnover on the S&P 500 yeah, of course. and the castle walls are a big part of that. Wow. Interesting. So you're saying the, you know, the, the opposite of that, the strategy is reinvention, reconfiguration. So what do you expect companies to do that, that maybe want to just hunker down? Cause I'm sure there's a lot of companies out there that just, they want to stay safe. You know, maybe their lizard brains telling them, Hey, let's just stay in my lane, <laughs> you know? Yep. So what's, what's, what's the, the opposite of that? What's the strategy to get away from that? Well, it is reinvention. I mean, it, it is, it, it's, um, you know, being disruptive, but being the one that disrupts your industry before somebody else disrupts you. Mm-hmm. You know, in the industrial age, it, there was very much a don't rock the boat mentality in large companies, and, and actually appropriately. I mean, I'm not saying that as a criticism, I'm just describing that age. In the industrial age, uh, you know, the industrial age with economies of scale, uh, the bigger you got, the more cost competitive you were, and therefore you got even bigger. And so it was kind of a virtuous cycle, and it was just race to be the biggest. And if you were at the top of that heap, um, you wouldn't want to change anything. But that's no longer the case today. I mean, large companies are not more cost competitive than smaller ones, right. uh, and there's a lot more disruption. So now your boat's being rocked whether you want to or not, so you should be the one rocking it. Now, the danger is that in reaction to castle walls, you jump way over to the other end of this, or, or, you know, to avoid the castle wall siren, you don't want to jump way over to the other end of the spectrum and just start, uh, you know, innovating wildly and proliferating and building and all that complexity. So you need to have kind of both perspectives and balance. And, you know, uh, I don't know if we'll get this and get to this one of the other nuggets, but that's where we talk about both the explorer's that's right. mindset and the navigator's skill. So that you need to kind of navigate this course. That's right. Well, let's get break right into that one because that's our next golden nugget. So golden nugget number four, you tell us that we need to assess our explorer's mindset. So what exactly is the explorer's mindset and why is it important that we assess that mindset? Well, let me, if I may, Ryan, just step back just a moment and just kind of see how we kind of came to this idea of the explorer's mindset. When we looked at, at growth and how companies were, were growing or not growing in this complex world, we saw that there's not just one simple story. You know, companies that have fallen off the, let's say, S&P 500 fell off for a variety of different reasons, but they came down to a couple groups. 
one group were those that didn't have the explorer's mindset. And, and, and I'm sure we'll talk, go into it more here in the coming minutes, but, you know, they didn't have the vision or the boldness uh, that, an, you know, you think of that an explorer would have. The other group uh, fell off because they didn't have the navigator skill set. They didn't really know where they made money. They didn't, um, you know, uh, reinvent their operating model for the t- you know, for today's needs and so forth. So when we, so in our book, we break down the mindsets and the skill sets, and you know some of our readers uh, will gravitate probably to, to one or the other, or need one or the other more than the other, and some may may need both. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So then, when you talk so, about the explorer's mindset, exactly, you know, you're telling us that we need to assess that mindset. What do you mean by that? Assessing our explorer's mindset. I think it's being it's being fairly reflective, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and those these mindsets, these explorer mindsets, will help you know, help start breaking down or, or helping you resist the sirens. So it's being reflective on these, and we list uh, five of the, you know, mindsets in the book. But, for example, the first one is, is uh, be bold, and, and I think it all starts there. To grow today, you have to be bold. I mean, we like to kind of play it safe, Yes. right? I think most most humans are very risk-averse, uh, and we like to play it safe. But, uh, you know, I, I kind of think of this analogy like, you know, you have to cross a minefield to get to success, but... Mm. You know, there's an 80% chance you're going to step on a mine, but if you stay where you are, you're going to starve to death. Right? That's right. That's the situation actually many companies are in. So, uh, you know, and by be bold, I think we would describe that as being entrepreneurial. I mean, mm-hmm. entrepreneurship, I mean, we, we tend to think of entrepreneurial as something that, that, that applies to small companies. Mm, yeah. You know, small companies, startups are entrepreneurial Big companies are managerial. They're, they're different. And that was true in the industrial age because big companies didn't want to rock the boat. And, and it's about you know, just continuing that virtuous cycle of greater economies of scale. Mm-hmm. But today, you don't have that virtuous cycle of greater economies of scale. Um, and today, large companies to succeed have to be entrepreneurial. And, and what we mean by entrepreneurial is you have to put action behind ideas. You, know, you have to have a belief in the future and how, how the future, how it's uh, different than the past. Right. And you have to be able to put capital and risk and, you know, behind that and, you know, resources behind that. And that's something that frankly is hard for most people. Mm. Uh, but th- that's the vision that senior leaders need to have. And, you know, when we say putting action behind ideas, what you need to do, clearly there's a risk there, right? You know, we're not saying that's playing it safer. But it's more it's 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 closer it's more akin to hey, you you have a fighting chance rather than just just letting yourself starve to death on this side of the minefield. Yeah, no kidding. It is very tough and it's very difficult. And again, we had Seth Godin on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about linchpin, and you know we really yeah. focused a lot on the lizard brain and how the lizard brain you know the lizard brain wants to be safe. It gets angry, you know, it 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 gets hungry, and it's a very simplistic part of our brain, the amygdala, but that really holds us back from you know doing things like you suggest, you know, like being bold. Well, being bold means risk. Simplifying. Well, simplifying is hard. And again, that means risk to yep. me, right? And, and so a lot of these things accelerate, you know, improve the odds, build, dismantle, repeat, you know, all these different aspects that you're talking about require a level of risk to the individual who wants to lead the charge on that, to the organization that decides to move in that direction. Very scary. So in your experience, you know, as a very experienced seasoned consultant, how do you help people get over the fear that's needed to move in this direction? 
Yeah, well, one is we maybe create a little bit of a different kind of fear, hmm. right, by showing them so. some other reality <laughs> that they're true. hiding from. Um, but the other is by being bold and simplifying, accelerating and improving the odds, and, you know, build, dismantle, repeat, what, what we, don't, we don't mean being reckless. Right? There's a difference between taking risks and being reckless. Hmm. There are smart ways to take this risk. Um, companies... In taking these risks, you're right. There, there is fear, of, or there's risk of failure, but also with risk of failure is opportunity to learn. So, so organizations that do this well are very smart and deliberate uh, about when they're experimenting and when they're not. Hmm. And when they tend to fail in being bold is when they're experimenting, but they don't really realize it. You know, they're they're experimenting on their they're they're taking an existential experiment. Hmm. Um, rather than the fast, you know, the smaller uh, experiments with the rapid learning and rapid evolution that you, you know, like for example, you see Amazon take, you know, right. you know, fast experiments, fast learning, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, the other way we help them through it is with the navigator skill sets. So the navigator skill sets, uh, you know, and, and the the um, explorers mindsets are, you know, they're very different skill sets. They, they, they you know, I'm sure Seth Godin would understand the brain much better than I, but they appeal to different types of being, but they're very symbiotic and you need both in companies. And so that's why if, if all you have is that explorer's mindset, mm. but not the navigator skill set, you're probably going to, you know, crash on the rock somewhere. Yeah. Okay. And, and if you have the navigator's skill set, but without the explorer's mindset, you're not going to crash on the rocks, but you're just going to keep going around around the earth and never get to a destination. Well, well, you set up the next and last golden nugget very well there, the navigator skill set. So you tell us that we need to build out our navigator skill set and become a growth leader. So introduce us to this last golden nugget here, the navigator skill set. What is that? Well, the navigator skill set, you know, you know, if, if, if you just – kind of build on this analogy we've been, you know, building or implying here, of, you know, you've, you know, companies, a ship setting a course to sea. it's, it's a skill to, to stay on course or avoid the rocks or see where the islands are you're trying to stop at. And so it's the skills to really operate the business and, um, you know, chief among them, it all starts with knowing where you make money. Mm. And uh, I have been just shocked over and over. And again, I'm sure we'll be shocked again to see that companies today really don't know where they make money. Yeah. And, and that sounds crazy, right? Mm-hmm. But we all kind of know it's true. And, and exactly, I mean, we, we, I've had client after client for the senior executives in the company, they feel that in their bones. I mean, they express the same thing. Mm-hmm. And there's, a, there's clearly a certain level of frustration that they have because the organization can't really clearly tell them where we make money, mm-hmm. which customers do, are, are the most profitable, um, what, you know, how much profit, you know, which products, are the most profitable, right. which market segments and stuff. Now, they may have numbers for all that, but nobody really believes those numbers. Nobody really believes the standard cost numbers because as, as companies have become more and more complex, there are greater and greater amounts of costs that are spread peanut butter style or, or allocated across things in products or markets or you know um, um, customers right. or, or what have you. And so the more you spread it, the greater the level of cross-subsidization between that. So that's the first Step, I think, is no more because if you don't really know where you make money, mm-hmm. um, you're not really making good decisions about right. where to put your resources. So now the second, uh, you know, navigator skill set is reigniting core brands. One thing that we have found over and over again is that a company that 
we don't see it 100%, but I see it over and over again, that a company's legacy core brands are the most profitable mm. and much more profitable than the organization thinks. And so what typically, like in, in the, I'll go back to the beer industry, you know, we all know that the legacy beer market is pretty flat to declining in sales and price point. You know, all, you know, the growth is all in craft brands. So mm-hmm. you see the large beer companies uh, investing a lot in developing and acquiring craft brands. And now um, they, you know, but they're putting a lot of those craft brands through uh, a supply chain or through breweries that were built for higher volume production. Right. But um, while the future is in craft brands, because the, leg- the legacy market is flat, it's declining, uh, what we find is that in a lot of these uh, large beer companies, the amount of complexity those craft brands add and the, uh, the uh, cost that they add to the marketing, to the supply chain, to manufacturing has more than eroded and eaten away the premium pricing that they get for it. So they actually make less uh, um, you know, per barrel or as you know, percent margin on those than their core brands. So what's the beer company to do? It doesn't mean not do that because that is where the market's going, but they have to be a lot smarter hmm. in how they do that. They, they can't be like, hey, we'll make a lot, throw it up the wall, see what sticks. And uh, if it does great, great, and makes a little bit, well, at least it's a little bit. Right. Uh, no, you may need to be much more judicial there. Growth in the age of complexity, steering your company to innovation, productivity, and profits in the new era of competition. You know, Andre, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show and really talking about something I am very passionate about, you know, this idea of complexity. I, I, I hate it to my core. And so to bring you on the show to talk about this and bring some good stimulus to people out there who might be running businesses, who might be feeling, you know, the pains of complexity. This is really important for them to read. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And if anyone wants to get in touch with you or they want to follow up with you afterwards, how can they go about doing that? Um, they can uh, uh, look up our website, send us an email. Uh, you know, it's www.wilsonparamall.com. Uh, the, uh, I, I'm, I'm nearly positive the email is, is in the back of the book somewhere. Yep. So they mm-hmm. can pick up the book, take a look, and reach out to us. We'd love to help them. You know, Ryan... We believe complexity is a defining issue facing companies and, and frankly, society going forward. Mm. And uh, we're trying to do our part to help further the thinking about that and, uh, you know, are very passionate about that subject. We think it requires rethinking many of the ways we think and what we've been trained to do. And so um, we're here to help folks along that way, whether that's just putting out our thoughts in the book and they can benefit Mm. from that or, you know, we can help them, uh, you know, in a more direct style. Of course. I love it. Andre, my man, thank you so much for coming on the show. Very much appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for having me. All right. There we have it. That is growth in the age of complexity, steering your company to innovation, productivity, and profits in the new era of competition by Andre Perumo. I'm telling you, like I said at the very beginning, he comes with a wealth of knowledge and tons of experience. That's the kind of guy that you want to reach out to and definitely ask some questions of and uh, even take out for a drink because there's so much that Andre has done in his career that we can learn from and that it can help us avoid making very similar mistakes and move away from this thing of complexity and move towards simplicity. And I really enjoy this conversation. And like I said at the very beginning, Man, the siren songs, I will never forget that piece. I'm committing that one specifically to memory because I really I really think that there's a lot of patterns today in businesses where we're seeing a lot of businesses being coaxed in by the siren songs. Maybe you're one of them. In any case, that was my biggest takeaway and I really enjoyed this book. It was a solid read, solid read. But if you also enjoyed this episode, then please, I always clap. I don't know why I always... I always do that. It's annoying. Anyways, but if you enjoyed this episode, then please go online, rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening on. If you have the capability to do that, 
you know, iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud. Rate and review the show. And uh, when you rate and review the show, send a screen capture of that rating of that review to podcast at ryancalajuri.com. If you don't have the capability, then just send me an email at podcast at ryancalajuri.com and I'll make sure you get entered in the draw every quarter for a prize. And of course, this quarter's prize, I clapped again. What is wrong with me? Jesus. <laughs> this quarter's prize, I'm giving away $1,000. So get your ratings in, get your reviews in. And don't forget to follow me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, we'll see what goes on there. Maybe I'll clap some more. I don't really know. But uh, follow me along throughout the week. See what I'm doing. And uh, again, just say hi to me and tell me that you found me through the podcast. I was going to clap again. What's up with my clapping? I guess I don't know why. I'm just in a clapping mood today. just want to give somebody a round of applause. But in any case, everyone, I had a lot of fun this week. And uh, again, I will catch you back here next week when I have a brand new book. Brand new Golden Nuggets, an interview with an author. And of course, you know what I'm doing here every single week, clapping my hands. But uh, in addition to that, just trying to save you a little bit of time and bring you some real information that can spark change in your life. Have a fantastic, productive week, everybody. I love you guys. (laughs) This is my clapping. When I was 29, I told myself, the next acting job I get, no matter what it pays, I will, from now on, for better or worse, be a working actor. At 29, walking away from data processing, I was terrified. 10 years in a place without heat, six years at a job I felt stuck in, maybe I was afraid of change. I got a low-paying theater job in a play called Imperfect Love, which led to other roles, which led to other roles. And I've worked as an actor ever since. Raise the rest of your life to meet you. Don't search for defining moments because they will never come. The moments that define you have already happened and they will already happen again. You, you just get a bit derailed. But soon something starts to happen. Trust me. A rhythm sets in. Just try not to wait until, like me, you're 29 before you find it. And if you are, that's fine too. Some of us never find it. But you will. I promise you. Don't wait until they tell you you are ready. The world might say you are not allowed to yet. I waited a long time out in the world before I gave myself permission to fail. Please, don't even bother asking. Don't bother telling the world you are ready. Show it, do it. What did Beckett say? Ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. The world is yours. Treat everyone kindly. 
light up the night. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you.